It's so lovely to see the church gathered and to have you all uh, in such rich fellowship with each other. This is beautiful. Uh, and then there are those who sat down early out of deference for me. <laughs> so, hey, good morning. I'm Bob Nowak. I'm uh, uh, one of the elders here at River West. Before Eric comes and shares the message that God has given him for us, I want to do a couple of things. Um, I want to read a prayer request that Nopum, our partner in the gospel, has sent to us. I'll, I'll uh, share that with you. And then I thought we ought to pray together for Nopum and the saints in Myanmar. It's a hard time there. And then I want to read the passage that we're going to uh, study this morning. So let me start with uh, Nopum. So our friend and partner in the gospel, Nopum, wrote a prayer request on Monday to several of us. Um, regarding ministry in the ever-increasing military state of Myanmar. Uh, yes, there's some uh, colorful language in this letter that you, 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 don't, you don't know exactly how to interpret it, but um, he, he begins with gratitude that last Sunday they were able to have a church service in person and, and, and ducked under the wire of this um, coming curfew. The curfew prohibits gatherings of more than five people anywhere, anytime. And then it has a, uh, a limit. You cannot be outside your home between the hours of 10 p.m. Uh, and 4 a.m. The consequences of disobedience are pretty dire. The military, it says, will shoot anyone caught out, outside during curfew. So Nopum uh, concludes his, his note this way, <clears throat> this quote, so I need to cancel all my plans again, but this time I will plan and arrange a Zoom preaching for Sunday. Uh, members uh, on, uh, uh, excuse me, Zoom preaching for church members on Sunday. Uh, this kind of situation points out the deadline is closer. In Chin State, we call it Satan's bye-bye. Please be informed about this situation so that you can pray for us. And may the Lord bless you all in his name, Nopum. So let's pray together now, but uh, I want to encourage you to lift up Nopum, Christians in Myanmar, and the ministry uh, advancing the kingdom of God there. So let's, let's pray together now. Father, first we want to acknowledge your uh, absolute um, sovereignty, that you're good, that you're omnipotent and omniscient. This... Uh, Action in Myanmar doesn't take you by surprise. The escalating potential civil war is no surprise to you. And um, gosh, indeed, you see our thoughts from afar. Nothing's too difficult from you. You can and do bring your kingdom during wars, rumors of wars, pandemics, all the time, no matter what. We praise you. We want to pray for Nopum's protection. We pray for boldness to preach the gospel and to train disciples and evangelists during this curfew. Come to him and his church with power, Lord. Grow your influence and the kingdom of God in Myanmar and remind us to pray and, and reveal to us how we can support our brothers and sisters 7,500 miles away and 13 and a half hours ahead. We pray these things for the name, excuse me, for the fame of Jesus and the power of his name. Amen. Well, thanks. And let's do commit uh, to continuing to pray for, for Nopum, his church, and the growth of the kingdom. And now, uh, if you wouldn't mind opening up your Bible, we're going to read 
from Ephesians chapter four in the first 16 verses. I'm gonna try to get, you know, Paul's angst in this passage. He's really exercised. And he says, so this is Paul, the apostle Paul speaking, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who's over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each, of, each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also d- had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And... He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every kind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. We haven't seen any of those lately, have we? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's God's word. Eric. Thank you. Well, it's good to be together today. A lot of times when I start a message, it's usually at the end of of a time of greeting, which gives sort of the preferred mood, you know, where it feels light and and all that, but, you know, when we got that um, email from Pastor Nopum, we, we felt like it was, it was good for us to let the weightiness of their moment as followers of Jesus, to let that weightiness sort of even sit on us. And so I know that that feels a little heavy, but I'm inviting you to embrace that today. Okay? All right. So we are going to finish today our series called Formed. And so we come to the end of this series and and our theme for today is going to be building. And I'll talk a little bit about what that means. What I want to do is I want to give you the headline of my message right up front because I want to sort of impress this on your hearts and invite you to kind of carry this truth throughout our time this morning. And it is this, that building a community of love is the great challenge of Christian discipleship. But this is what Jesus is actually doing. The challenge of building a community of love and specifically Christ's love 
is a massive undertaking. But this is actually what our mission is. That challenge, it's proved to be a challenge historically. The text that that Bob just read to us was written in the 60s, and I don't mean the 1960s, I mean 62 AD, about three decades after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Building a community of love was really hard back then. And throughout church history, it's proven to be true. And even if you asked me, and maybe you're not asking me, but I'll tell you what the hardest thing about Christian ministry in the 21st century is, I would say, building a community of love. So it's historically proven to be a challenge. It's globally proven to be a challenge. The challenge of building a Christian um, community of love is transcultural. We just heard about our brothers and sisters in Christ in Myanmar and the deep challenge, no poom what he's talking about in an email is the great challenge of building a community of love in an oppressive government reality. So next week we will get the immense privilege and honor to hear Pastor Charles from African New Life coming to our church to this stage to preach the word to us. No doubt, Pastor Charles, he's preached here before, he will talk about the immense darkness of the Rwandan genocide of 1994 and the challenge that that created, but he will talk about the reconciling love of Jesus in the community of Christ, which transformed a nation. Every culture has had to struggle with how, do we, how are we going to build a community of love? That is the great challenge of Christian discipleship. But again, this is what Jesus is doing. And it's hard. And it's not an option for us. So the question is, is will we join him in that? So let's do this this morning. Let's take a deep breath. And um, we'll remind ourselves of where we've been in our series. Our series has been called Formed. We've been looking at how Jesus forms disciples. So we started with the question, what actually is a disciple? And our working definition of a disciple is someone who entrusts themselves to Jesus as, anybody remember? Savior, Lord, and teacher. I think I heard it. (laughs) That's a disciple of Jesus. If you want to hear back kind of more about some of these, as I kind of review our series, go back and listen if, if you forgot. So what is discipleship? And we, um, we gleaned from the wisdom of the late Dallas Willard, who said that discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. And then we ask the question, how does Jesus form disciples? And so we talked about Jesus forms his disciples through instruction and practice. He's teaching them a way of living that they can participate in. We talked about how Jesus forms his disciples through power and patience. To be a disciple of Jesus means to be filled with the Holy Spirit's power in your life. But it takes a very, very, very long time to be formed into the image of Christ. Is anybody with me on that? (laughs) power and patience. Then we took a turn about a month ago and we began to ask the question, where does Jesus form disciples? Because discipleship is more than sort of a personal growth project. 
It's about community. And the answer to where Jesus forms disciples is here in a church community. And so we began to think about the kind of, of community that we are cultivating, the kind of discipleship environment that we're cultivating here at River West Church. And so four words have sort of guided us through this last month, belonging, believing, becoming, and today, building. We talked about cultivating a community of belonging in a culture of isolation. We talked about cultivating a community of believers in a culture of deconstruction. Last week, we talked about cultivating a community that is becoming like Jesus in a world that conforms to culture. And today, we will talk about building a community of love. More specifically, Christ's love for the world. And so the passage we read this morning, and I'm not sure if you picked up on this, but that passage, Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, it, it impresses all of those words or themes onto a church community in, or a collection of churches in Ephesus. Paul speaks to this community. He writes to them about cultivating a community of belonging. I think we'll see that this morning. And he talks to them about what kind of belief they can hold on to together as they, as they hold on to Jesus. And he talks about cultivating a community where each person is invited into the process of becoming like Jesus. And then he tells us that it is actually love that holds all of it together. The last words that Bob read in that passage was about the body of Christ building itself up in love. And so this morning, we're gonna talk about the hard work of building a community of love. What is necessary if we are to join Jesus in building a community of love? Many things, but in particular in this passage, there are two things. They are commands from Jesus himself, and that is to bear with one another in love and to speak the truth in love. So that's what we'll think about in our journey today. I want to start with this idea of bearing with one another in love. So we'll turn back to um, chapter four, verses one to three. And I love the way that Bob, um, I love the sound of Bob's voice. And I know that that sounds weird, but you do too. You feel it. And when, we, when I asked him to read the passage, I, I invited him to just to actually sort of engage, not just with the words of that text, but the tone of the text, right? The scriptures have, they have a tone. There's an emotional weight behind them and, and I appreciated the way he read it because what's actually happening in this text is that Paul is begging, he is pleading with this community. He has this sort of spiritual authority in their life because of his apostleship, even because of his relationship to them and, and in particular to some of their leaders like Timothy, who's kind of leading this community. Paul has like an authority to them. And, and, you, and sometimes when we think about authority, we think about like a, a leader commanding people to do something and Paul takes a different approach. He says, I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. For what? Well, here's what he says. He says, I urge you in verse one, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Now pay attention here. With all humility and gentleness, with patience. Now listen to this. 
bearing with one another in love. He's begging them to bear with one another in love. The Greek word for bearing is about, it's a word that conjures up the idea of suffering and enduring with one another. He's pleading with them, like suffer together. He's asking them, would, would you be willing to do this with one another right now? And one of the interesting things, if you've read the letter to the Ephesians, one of the interesting things about this, this, this act of Paul pleading with them to bear with one another in love is that all the evidence of the letter has pointed to the reality that they were in fact loving one another. And they were actually doing well in that. We'll put this up on the screen. You don't have to turn back, but it's just a page if you turn back. In, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul, at the beginning of the letter and throughout the letter, there's this overwhelmingly positive tone in his voice. And he says this to them. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer. Now consider this with me for just a moment. What's happening in Ephesus is that their believing and their belonging has come together. He says, I see your faith. It's genuine. It's orthodox. It's, it's true. He says, I see your faith. And then in the next sentence, he says, and I also see your love. For one another, your believing and your community of belonging has come together and it's awesome. And he loves it. He's cheering them on. Throughout the letter, he's just cheering them on. He's like, I see it. I love it. But then in chapter four, the tone changes from cheering them on to actually warning them and pleading with them, begging them. Here's a Bible word for you. He's exhorting them to bear with one another in love. And it's almost like he's saying like, right now you're in like the honeymoon stage of Christian community. Remember when you joined our church or, or think about the churches you've been through or you've been a part of in the past, that sort of honeymoon stage, like this is awesome and everyone's awesome. And I love all the pastors and you know, just that sort of sense of like, everything is really good. Paul is like, it won't last. He says this, he, he actually gives us a definition of what bearing with one another in love looks like. He says, it looks like, did you see it? It looks like humility. And it looks like gentleness and it looks like patience. Now those are wonderful words, but those words are only exercised. Like humility is exercised when pride is actually an option. Am I right? And gentleness is, is something we exercise when our temptation is to exert force, either physically or with our words over another person. And you only have to be patient with people that make you feel impatient, right? And Paul brings all of this under this heading of bearing with one another in love. He says, that's what you're going to need to do that call to bear with one another in love. It pushed against the culture of the time in the 60s of the city of Ephesus. It pushed against all sorts of cult cultural norms in that time. 
And it continues to push against the cultural norms of our time. This call to be humble and gentle and patient or in a phrase to bear with one another in love is antithetical to the ideologies of our cultural moment. If you want to know what sort of the cultural moment is, we, we, can, we listen to, to music or we look at art or we, in our, I guess in our time, we listen to the podcasts of the moment or we read the literature that is coming out in our culture, but also we see it in, in TV and film, right? We see the ideologies of our moment through film. And I like movies. And I'm usually fairly like, like I do a fairly good job, I think of like self kind of like censoring. Like I kind of know like, don't watch this movie, you're gonna hate it, or don't watch this movie, it's gonna scare you. You know, that like that kind of stuff. And um, years ago, I think it was about 10 years ago, it was like a date night with my wife. And by date night, I mean like, like Netflix. This might even been the day when, remember when Netflix brought you a DVD, like they mailed you a DVD? It might have even been that. And we were going to watch sort of like a recently released rom-com from, you know, from, this is around like 2012, I think. And um, it was a movie that was based on, of a book of the same title. And that movie and book was called Eat, Pray, Love. Have you heard of it? So it's a movie about self-discovery, about finding your truth and living your truth, this sort of like relentless pursuit of personal happiness, whatever the cost. And actually that finding personal happiness means to remove things and in particular people, even a spouse from your life, if they kind of push up against your personal happiness. Now, I'm not trying to demonize the author of this book or Julia Roberts, who starred in the role, but, but this is sort of, at least this is how I'm watching the movie and this is what's happening. And I want to ask you this. So have you ever felt like when you're watching a movie or maybe you're listening to, to music or an art form, like have you ever had this overwhelming sense like this is evil? Like this is actually evil. Like I got to turn this off. And so I'm watching this movie. I mean, at this point in my mind, date night's over. And like, I literally felt God's spirit in that moment as I was watching this film. Like I, I, I felt that in the midst of all this positivity of self-fulfillment and enlightenment and the like, the glory of rom-com, that actually I was watching the diabol diabolical spirit of the age in film. And I felt the spirit of God said, you need to turn this off immediately. Now, now hear me, like I, this is not an attempt at self-righteousness or, but I was watching the film and the spirit of God impressed on my heart. You're watching something that is anti-Christ right now. And I felt like the Lord, the spirit was telling me this message, this ideology will actively move people away from the heart and way of Jesus. Because the reality is, is that discipleship to Jesus is only possible if you learn to bear with real people who will often get in the way of your personal happiness. Like that's actually what's gonna happen 
in Christian discipleship. And we live in a world that says you need to remove those obstacles, but our Christian reality actually invites us to enter more deeply into those relationships through humility and gentleness and patience. So we do war against the ideologies of our time, but we practice love with the people that push up against our sensibilities and our desires for fulfillment. The culture says, when that happens in your life, run away from it, go on a year long, like backpacking trip to pursue your own happiness. And the scriptures say that if you commit to following Jesus, and if you find yourself in relationships where you have to actually practice humility and gentleness and patience, the scriptures would say, congratulations. You are in the only environment where you can be formed into the image of Christ. That is the only place where this can happen. And so Paul, back to our text, Paul is literally begging this community in Ephesus to bear with one another and cultivate a community of belonging. And he uses the word agape to describe love. The word agape, we've talked about this before. The word agape means to prefer. In particular, it means to prefer another over yourself. That is bearing with one another in love, and that is the opposite of eat, pray, love. Okay, I'll let that, I'll let that go. Paul writes to this community, and they're doing well. We know in, in, in Ephesians 1, they're doing well. Faith and love, it's come together in a beautiful way, and yet Paul is begging them, like, this, this won't continue on accident. And so what happens throughout the New Testament is that Ephesus becomes sort of a case study of how a church can lose its way. We see that in particular in Revelation chapter two, and I'm gonna invite you to turn there. The answer is no, we are not gonna talk about the return of Christ right now. But I wanna talk about the book of Revelation just really briefly. The book of Revelation is among other things a revelation that the Apostle John has of our Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrection glory. John is in, invited in, into this vision of heaven. And Jesus Christ himself says, I'd like to talk to you about the churches. I've got a message for the churches. And his first message, believe it or not, is to Ephesus. And here's what, this is what Jesus says to Ephesus. And this is about 30 years after, if, if, if the letter of Ephesians was written in 62 AD, we think that John probably had this revelation and recorded it of Jesus in, in like the 90s. So in like, it, so this is like 30 years, a few decades later, this is Jesus's message to Ephesus. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. So there's that word bear. He's like, I know that you're not enduring with evil. He says, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. 
Jesus goes on, he says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Literally, they're bearing up for the name of Jesus. They're suffering for Jesus. This is actually awesome. But then in verse four, Jesus says this, I have this against you. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So we think of the book, if we think of the revelation as a letter that's addressed to real churches in a real time in history about the real stuff that they were dealing with, Jesus's word, his prophetic word through John to these churches is almost like a communal report card. You know what I'm saying? He's like, good works, check. Endurance, A plus. Hating what is evil, check. Exposing false prophets, check. Suffering for Jesus' sake, A plus. I mean, it's just like glowing Reviews And if some of you parents, you've, you've been at like the meeting with the teacher and it's like, it starts off really well. It's like, this is awesome. Your kid is amazing. And then it turns, you know what I'm saying? And then it turns at the end and they're like, but they punched somebody yesterday. You're like, ah. So <laughs> Ephesians is doing awesome doctrinally. And Ephesians is actually doing good works. So their faith, remember James? Like their faith and their doing has actually come together in a wonderful way, they're steady. They aren't tricked by the cultural kind of vision that is presented to them. But in the midst of all that, the worst thing possible has happened to them. They lost the love they had at first. So there's a significant debate in theology about... um, whether this is talking about their love for God or their love for each other. And I would simply say the answer to that is yes. We've read this passage a lot. Some translations say you've lost your first love and, and we think, oh, they must be talking about their love for Jesus. But, but wouldn't they have an amazing just body of evidence to present to Jesus? Of course we love you. Look at our doctrine. Look at the good w- things we're doing for you, Jesus. We're like suffering and some of us have even died for your sake. Of course we love you. And Jesus would say to them, but you stopped loving one another. And so in the midst of sort of this this, um, account that you are claiming to be full of good things, I declare you to be bankrupt. And Jesus himself you know that talk about the lampstand at the end of, of that passage. What he's basically saying is, I will shut your doors if you stop loving one another. I will actually shut down your church organization and I'll build a new one. And so Ephesus starts off by, becoming, by, by living as a, as a community of love. They are urged and pleaded with by their leaders to remain a community of love. And then here we find at the end of their story in the biblical narrative that the reason 
that God begged them to remain in love is because they lost it. And what a great tragedy that is. The heart of God for a Christian community is that our believing and our belonging would come together. Now let's, let's turn back to Ephesians chapter four because it's important to, to, to remind ourselves we don't belong to each other in sort of a vaguely spiritual way. Our belonging is connected to our belief. So notice here in, in, um, back in Ephesians four, in verse four, Paul says there's one body and he's talking about the unity of the church. He says, there's one spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, there's one hope, and this refers to our eternal hope for the resurrection of our bodies. He says, there is one Lord, and who is that Lord? Jesus Christ. He says, there's one faith, and that is the essential truths of our Christian life and what we confess together. He says, there's one baptism, which is an outward sign that a person has become a disciple of Jesus. He says, there's one God and father of all. And here we have the picture of the triune community of love, father, son, and Holy spirit. And he says, your belief, your faith is connected to this confession. But if your belief becomes disembodied from the real people in your life, then your belief is bankrupt. If your belief is not expressed in love for one another, if you refuse to bear with one another in love, I'll start a new community. That's what we're being told here. Let's keep journeying through this passage. Paul goes on to talk about the church. He talks about how Christ builds his church. So I'm going to skip down again, and I should have told you this early on. This, Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, like there are thousands of sermons that could be preached from this text. And, um, and we will not be able to exhaust its riches. But I will say this. We, we must look at the way that Jesus builds his church. So I want to invite you to skip down to verse 11 of chapter 4 in Ephesians. And, you know, we've preached this passage a number of times and we've talked about this idea of every member ministry in our church. Have you ever heard us talk about that here? But I want you to notice that this every member ministry is all leading towards building a community of love. Now, now listen to this. In verse um, 11 of chapter 4, it says, Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or the, or the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and, and the culture of our, of our day, and by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather speak the truth in love. And as you do that, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We build a community of love by learning how to speak the truth in love. So what I want to do in the rest of our time together is I want to make a case for what speaking the truth in love is and isn't. So let's start by saying that speaking the truth in love 
is not engaging in arguments on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking the truth in love is not sending a YouTube link to your pastor of a sermon that you wish he or she would preach. That can't be speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, even in our digital age, requires far more than the ability to copy and paste. You know, the, we think in, in our time, this sort of disembodied like digital rage is like, like sometimes we theologize what we do. We're like, I'm speaking the truth in love to this brother in Kansas or what, you know what I'm saying? Like we're like by, by copying this YouTube link, I have spoke the truth in love. And that can't be what Paul means. So Paul writes to a church community about what speaking the truth in love actually is. And, and, and here's what I think he's saying. He's, he talks about the leadership of the church. He talks about the purpose of the leadership, which is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Man, I thought everybody would say that. Okay, building up the body of Christ so that it moves forward in unity and maturity. This is the language about cultivating a community that is becoming like Jesus. Did you notice when, when we read that passage, he talks about maturing in, as the body of Christ, of growing up into Christ. And Paul says, I want to show you how you'll grow up into Christ. And he says, here's how it happens. You learn to speak the truth in love. So I'll say this, speaking the truth in love is something we do both corporately in our gatherings and relationally in our lives together. So when we gather as a church, here's what's happening. We are speaking or oftentimes singing the truth in love when we gather. How does that motivate like your participation in our singing? What I'm doing right now when I worship is I am singing the truth in love to you and over my community. When we pray together corporately, whether it's sort of an ancient prayer from scripture or a, a creed like, like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed or, or when we pray a prayer from sort of ancient church history, what we're doing is we're speaking the truth in love to one another. What I'm doing right now because I love you is I'm speaking the truth and I love you enough to tell you the truth and God has loved me enough to tell me the truth and by God's grace we're going to learn how to live it out together when we gather corporately we are speaking the truth in love and not just speaking it but actually doing it now I will say this the phrase speaking the truth in love like we it it actually, the way the Greek works, it doesn't actually focus on the speech of the community. It literally means truthing in love. That there's sort of this activity of living out truth in a way that brings out the love of Christ. Truth and love. I love the, the late theologian and pastor John Stott. He said it this way. I think we, we have this quote, I think, somewhere. Truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. Love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. 
the apostle, he's talking about Paul, calls us to hold the two together. And listen to this, which should not be difficult for the spirit-filled believers, since the Holy Spirit is himself the spirit of truth and his first fruit, the fruit of the spirit is what? Love. Now hear this, there is no other route than this to a fully mature Christian unity. This is the only way it happens. I had a profound experience this last week in my discipleship to Jesus. I was sitting with my mentor in a restaurant and we were talking about my life and in particular challenges in my life. And he looked at me and he said, Eric, I need to tell you something. I love you. And he says, what I want you to do right now is I want you to tell me the truth about your life. And since, since I'm like a, like a recovering shame addict, I, I said this, I said, the truth of my life is I could do a lot better. And he goes, that's actually, that's actually not the truth. And I thought he meant, I, he wanted me to be more specific. I was like, oh, I'll, I'll say it more specifically. The truth is that I'm pretty spiritually lazy. And he goes, that's not the truth. I want you to think about the truth of your life. And so I sat there for a few minutes in a restaurant and thought to myself, what is, what is actually the truth of my life? That this brother who loves me is trying to draw out of me. And I said this, I said, after some thought and a couple failed attempts, I said this. The truth is that the God of the universe has an unshakable love for me. And what happened in that moment, excuse me, what happens in a moment like that is that when you speak the truth and love to one another, it has a snowball effect. So then suddenly my spirit raises from sort of the, the natural fleshly shame that we often live with. And suddenly I'm, I start talking about the blessings of my life and my family and my marriage, my kids, the whole thing. And I'm telling you, John Barleycorns became a sanctuary in that moment. <laughs> because speaking the truth in love is speaking spiritual reality to and over each other. And when we speak the truth in love, we say this, I love you. Tell me the truth about your life. And if you can't remember it, I'll say it for you. Yes, speaking the truth in love has this sort of corrective nature, but it's supposed to be the ongoing activity and practice of our life in Christ. It's how Paul says, it's how he ends his, 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 this portion of his letter by saying, this is the way that the church builds itself up in love. It's by bearing with one another in love and by speaking the truth in love. And I know I've gone really long this morning, but I'm gonna ask you to bear with me for just a, one more minute. This is how we build a community of love, by bearing with one another in love, by, by speaking the truth in love to one another. And this is the way Jesus told us to do it. We'll end here, John 13. Jesus has gathered his disciples. In fact, I'll invite the band up here so I don't get too long-winded. The music will remind me to wrap this up. In John 13, Jesus has gathered his disciples and he has washed, 
He is washing their feet, which is an act of love that will only be like outdone by the death that he will die for them shortly after this. And Jesus, we're told, loves his disciples all the way to the end, all the way to the end. And here's, here's what he says to them. And this relates to our discipleship. In verse 34 of chapter 13, it says this, a new commandment I give you. That commandment is to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Now hear this. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another. Building a community of love. Remember where we started? Building a community of love is the great challenge of Christian discipleship. I didn't make that up. This is what Jesus told us. To build a community of love for one another. The greatest apologetic for Christ is a community of people that love each other. It's not a well-crafted argument about Jesus. It's actually the way that a community of people like ours would love each other. This is how the world will know we follow Jesus, if we love each other. I'll end with this story. Pastor Guy, our founding pastor, tells a story of the early days of our church community, and it was hard. Some of you were there. It was hard. There was no building. There was no money. <laughs> there was you know, hardly any people. And um, he talks about a moment when he was driving over, I think it was the I-5 bridge, one of the bridges, it doesn't matter. He was driving and he said, the spirit of God spoke to me in a moment. It spoke truth into his heart. And it was this. It was from the scriptures. The spirit of God said, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And this can happen. And it has. So we remain in that love by bearing with one another. Coming together regularly to tell each other the truth. Let's pray. Lord, we are compelled by your love, called by your love to love one another. That is incredibly hard and most of the time feels impossible. But you have shown us the way. It's the way of the cross, of self-giving love, of preferring others over ourselves. Would you lead us in your love today as we worship you? In your name we pray. Amen.